Let's pray. Heavenly Father, prepare the way for your Son in Jesus' name. St. Mark doesn't have time for the birth narrative, nor does he even have time for the resurrection. His favorite word is immediately. Not only is he the shortest gospel, but he's also the one with the most action. With only 16 verses, you can read it in just about an hour. And without all the begats and poetry, you don't have to worry about falling asleep because it's nothing but nonstop action. If we were one of those churches with the big stained glass windows, you know, the ones with all the saints, it would be really easy to spot which one was John the baptizer. See, all the others would have a halo around their head, long flowing white robes, a scroll in their hand, and this holy look of compassion out of their eyes. That's not John the baptizer, though. See, everybody thought he was going to follow in his father's footsteps and become a temple priest, but... You know, the family should have known better. After all, when they tried to name him Zechariah Jr., well, Zechariah Sr. wouldn't have it. And he emphatically wrote, his name will be John, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. That's when the angel released Zechariah's tongue and Zech was able to praise God up and down the streets. By the time John was old enough to get a job, his mom and dad, long gone. John most likely went and hung out in the wilderness with the Essenes, um, a religious group, by the way, best known for their daily ritual washing. Do you see the connections here? By the time he begins his own ministry, well, as the one who comes before, he had his own brand, and it was very clearly identifiable. When artists try to paint him, he has wild eyes, tangled hair, ribs protruding through suntan skin, holding on to a scroll and shouting, repent, the kingdom of God is near. Yeah, and uh, John is also portrayed sitting on a rock, munching on some grasshoppers, washing it down with a little bit of honey. He's wearing this shaggy vest of camel's hair. Oh, not the fancy camel hair coats that we have today. I'm, I'm talking camel hair right off the camel. But still, those wild eyes. And if the painting, by the way, is about the end of his ministry, well, his head is on a platter with the wild eyes, all compliments of Herod's stepdaughter. But I'm getting ahead of myself, and we got to wait for that. Had John followed in his dad's footsteps, he would have helped the pilgrims with their ritual washings at the temple. They not only did sacrifices, but there were also ritual washings. You can read about it. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all those first books talk about them. It was a holy bath that bestowed God's forgiveness and restored favor. Now, the temple, for all of its glory, though, had locked God in a box. And the only way to see God or give an offering or smell the prayer incense or get forgiven was to journey all the way to Jerusalem, which was fine if you happened to live up the street. But if you lived in Bethlehem or Galilee or Samaria, well, it was a long and sometimes very dangerous journey. Because of who he was, John knew he couldn't stay at the temple. He had to go to the people. And of all the places he chose, it was the Jordan River, which, by the way, isn't near the temple at all. And it should be noted, it's called the Jordan River because, well, it happens to be the, well, you know, the boundary between Israel and Jordan, meaning it's right on the edge of not being Israel. You'd think if he really wanted to gather a crowd, John would have chosen the temple because the crowds were already there. But there's a method to his madness. But that's a story that we're going to have to wait until after Christmas to tell. 
calling people to a completely or reoriented heart. John declared, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall be made straight, and all the flesh shall see the salvation of God. Prepare the way of the Lord, he told the people. Make his path straight, straight out of Isaiah, the 40th chapter. And the assumption, by the way, was that everybody knew who it was that was coming. You know that person at the TSA checkpoint at the airport that says, cell phones, belt, shoes, jewelry, wallets, in the bin, empty your water bottles, uh, keep the line moving, you don't want to hold things up. That's John the baptizer. And you know what happens when someone isn't paying attention, or they think that all those directions don't apply to them. They get pulled off to the side while everybody else gets held up. And those people, by the way, well, they get help getting their life in order. John is Advent personified. His job is to tell everyone after a few thousand years of on-again, off-again silence that God is about to do what only God can do, and that is save the world. And there isn't a mountain or a valley or an ocean or a political party or a religious order that is going to be able to stand in his way. You see, temples and churches can't actually contain God. It's King Solomon, the one who built the first temple, he's the one who said that, 1 Kings 8, even heaven, the highest heaven, cannot contain you, O God, much less this temple that I have built. Governments and kingdoms, well, they can't control him. Priests and pastors, they can't change him. Scientists, well, they can't disprove him. You see, when God moves, whatever God wants to happen, well, is going to happen. Isaiah, in the 55th chapter of his book, says, So my word, and we're talking about God's word, that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty. It will accomplish what I please, and it will prosper in what I send it to do. When John is told to tell the people to get ready for God, it's not a gentle reminder or email that starts off with, you know, I don't want to bother you, but if you have time or if you have the inclination, no, John's cry of repentance is about leaving the old behind, which means mountains of sin and pain have to be leveled. Valleys of despair and anxiety need to be filled in. Roads that were made crooked by our swaffling and our, well, you know, and the barriers that we put up, they need to be straightened out. And uh, whatever we have done, whatever Satan has done, whatever the world has done that put obstacles between us and God, well, they all need to be flattened. God's coming to visit us. And by the way, he doesn't want us to polish the silver or get out the good china or vacuum the carpet or dust the tables. No, you see, God actually wants us waiting outside on the curb so that when he pulls up in his chariot and the door flies open, we can jump in and he can take us to the stable so that we can see the birth of his son. When John preached about this leveling of everything, not everyone listening gave it a five-star review. You see, John could be a polarizing figure. First, you had to deal with the smell of the camel hair and the wild hair and the munching of grasshoppers, often with a couple of legs stuck right there in his teeth. And if you could get past that, there was the whole repent thing. Oh, and we should throw in, don't forget, remember that one day where he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And he was talking to the religious leaders, you know, those guys in the flowing white robes that act all, well, important. John was the kind of guy you invited to the party because you never knew exactly what he was going to say or do, but you knew if he was at the party, well, it was going to be quite the show and everyone was going to be talking about it. See, it's interesting. When the religious leaders questioned where Jesus got his authority, I want you to think about this. They come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, where did you get your authority? And Jesus turns it around and he says, well, where did John get his authority? Notice how Jesus ties that together. 
When Jesus grew up and started his ministry, John was the first one, um, besides Jesus' mom, of course, who both recognized and declared that Jesus really was the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. When you read the Gospels, and, and by the way, there's not a lot in there about this, but, but what it does say about John's baptisms at the Jordan River is everyone came out to see him, that an awful lot of people got baptized, and the only ones that John had a problem with was the religious elite. In other words, there were sinners, there were tax collectors, there were lepers, there were all of these broken people. John welcomed them. The only people he struggled with were those guys in the flowing white robes that were acting all important. And so when Jesus begins building a core of disciples that includes women, tax collectors, prostitutes, Samaritans, lepers, the poor, the sick, the hungry, the cast-offs, but only a few, very few Pharisees and Sadducees, and that doesn't take place for a little while. You didn't have to be a genius to connect these two ministries. When you read Isaiah 53, that's the suffering servant passage, it changes how you view the coming Messiah. See, we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus washes feet, hangs out with the sick and the lost and the hurting, and the whole riding a donkey in a parade thing, that is just totally Jesus. If Jesus is God, then with the snap of a finger or the blink of an eye, he could destroy the entire universe. He could turn everything black and white, or he could rearrange all of the stars. God can do anything he wants. Which is why when he chooses to save us, it should cause us to step back and think. If he is willing to be born in a stable and have stinky shepherds and animals as his first visitors, it shows how far he's willing to go to save us, which in in turn should tell us just how much he must care about us. Did you know that Kodak invented digital photography? They didn't think anybody would be interested in it, so they continued to make rolls of 12, 24, and 36 film. Sears was the original Amazon, only it was a paper catalog that people ordered from, and and it came, you know, shipped right to their door. Blockbuster refused Netflix's offer to buy anything out uh, because they were sure that people were always going to want to rent videotapes. Tower Records was so sure no one was going to be interested in that newfangled MP3 thing, they just, well, went out of business. See, it's tragic that a church that was created to get everything ready for the Messiah the Messiah, by the way, who was going to save them from their sin, who was going to do whatever was necessary so that they could go to heaven. This church was unwilling to let Jesus in when he finally showed up. The church had built itself into a kingdom of itself, one that didn't need a Messiah. They had massive buildings and gold fixtures and crowds coming and going all day. And most importantly, the religious elite had power. And they certainly didn't want women, lepers, the blind, the deaf, and those with mental health struggles in the church messing up their power and all of their pretty stuff. See, on Palm Sunday, as Jesus rode the donkey down the hill outside the city limits, he he stopped. And these are the words of St. Luke. Jesus wept over the city, saying, If you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build an embankment against you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in you, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus' heart was broken by those whose identity depended on them remaining in power, who expected God to color inside the lines, who were willing to condemn the world in order to maintain the status quo. The Jesus movement didn't sit well with the religious elite because he was a threat to their way of life. Would you have left your fishing boat? 
How about your water jar at the well, your, your, your tax collector booth, your night work, your job, your church, in order to follow Jesus? I'm the first to admit that I'm not always comfortable with the way that God does things. There are so many times that I see him at work. I know it's him at work, and yet it is not in my comfort zone, and so I'm all queasy and awkward about it. You'd think, by the way, after 35 years of being a pastor, that I would have figured out the whole leaving the temple and heading out to the river where people did their laundry and took their animals and flushed their toilets, but I haven't. See, if nothing else, God is always a God who is able to continually surprise me. After Jesus rose from the dead, Thomas was off doing whatever Thomas was doing, which is why he missed Jesus' first reunion with all the other disciples. The next week when Jesus showed up, and this time Thomas was there, uh, Jesus went and he held out his hands, uh, the nail holes in him, and he says, go ahead, Thomas, stick your finger in there. I know you want to. And then he said, blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believe. I'm going to agree with Jesus on this one. It is easier to believe without seeing, to believe from a distance where we can imagine everything is prim and proper and just the way that we like it. Up close and personal, there are all those questionable people, radical teachings, expectation, changes, new things, donkey poo. But then again, if everything was perfect, if there were no sinners, no sins, no lost sheep, no prodigal sons, there wouldn't be a need for the gospel or Christmas or Easter. And so like John the baptizer, we will live and learn to love in an imperfect world. It won't be that long before John sends someone to ask Jesus, are you the one or should we look for somebody else? John's in prison and he's beginning to wonder what's going on. And Jesus responds, tell him what you've seen. See the works of God. The blind can see, the deaf can hear, demons are cast out, lepers are cleansed, and the lost are found. And that is where we realize what Christmas, I'm talking about the real one that involves shepherds and a star and wise men, an unwed mother, a carpenter stepfather, angels, a baby in a, born in a, sta a stable. That's what it's all about. You see, God comes into the muck and the mire of our world to save us because we need to be saved. And so our Advent prayer becomes, forgive me, Lord. Open my eyes and my soul. Tear down the mountains I built so that I could be above everyone else. Fill in the valleys I've fallen into when I sinned. Enlighten the shadows that I've tried to hide in. Make a straight path right through my stubborn, sinful, hardened heart. That in the weeks to come, it may become the perfect place for your son to be born. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.